0: The State, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn and it's a pleasure to be back with you in 2022. Well, with old photos of Grace Tame and Anthony Albanese being used by sections of the media to produce stories or, as some would say, old-fashioned hit jobs... We ask, is this back to the future style of journalism valid and in the public interest? Is a photo from someone's formative years always fair game? And what responsibility does the media have to protect someone's mental health? And is someone reading a copy of the complete works of Karl Marx from 30-odd years ago or a teenager sucking on a bong actually news? Today we ask when is someone's past in the public interest? To discuss this and more this week we're joined by Jacqueline Mailey. She's a columnist and senior writer at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. She's also the author of the novel The Truth About Her, which examines the ethical questions raised by the practice of journalism today, including the moral responsibilities from the reporter to the subject of their work. Jacqueline Mailey, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And Amy Ramikis also returns to the Fourth Estate panel this week. You'll know her work as a political reporter for Guardian Australia. She's also the author of On Reckoning, a searing account of, as she says, her own personal and professional rage, taking you inside Parliament House in Canberra and out during one of the most confronting and uncomfortable conversations that we've had in recent memory. Amy Ramikis, a warm welcome back to Fourth Estate. I'm thrilled to be here. And last but certainly not least is Karen Percy. She's the chair of Dart Centre Asia Pacific and non-executive director of the Walkley Foundation. She's also the media president of the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance. She spent over 30 years as a broadcast journalist, including long stints with the ABC, SBS and Channel 10. Karen Percy, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Well, let's jump right in. In Grace Tames' open letter, she wrote about how the media had basically let her down with the publication of that photo and the implications that, that came along with its publication and what it has for fellow survivors of abuse and how it might affect their, their want to move forward with advocacy. Should it have ever been published? Is it newsworthy? Amy, I'm going to go to you first.
1: Uh, No, I don't think it was newsworthy and I don't think it should have been published. There was absolutely no point to that because, first of all, uh, it was when she was 19, uh, she has spoken many, many times about the coping mechanisms that she used as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse Uh, and she'd always been very open about that. The fact that this photo was published after she'd finished her term as Australian of the Year where she had made, as she had promised, a lot of noise in that space where she had uh, entered the political sphere by criticising the actions of the government. The fact that it was published after all of that just absolutely smacks of a gotcha piece. Uh, And I think she's right. I think it does actually harm people who are trying to move on with their lives, particularly in areas of advocacy.
0: Jacqueline, uh, Grace is a a former Australian of the year and she's been a key player in, in much of the government woes with female voters so do you think there's an argument here that all aspects of her life are now indeed within the public interest?
2: Um, I think that you know, if the last few years, less you know, since the Me Too movement, have taught us anything, it's that um, journalists have, I suppose, an extra obligation or an extra ethical duty when it comes to survivors of abuse and various other types of trauma. That you know, consent needs to be prioritised in a way that maybe you know journalists um, have gotten lazy with in the past. And look, in terms of Grace Tame, you know, she the criticism made of Grace Tame is that she sort of, I suppose, has made herself a target because she's been so critical of other people. She's been so outspoken and there are a lot of people, you know, a lot of pundits and stuff who think that it's inappropriate that she's criticised the Prime Minister and she's criticised the role and she's made it unnecessarily divisive and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that's their opinion. You know, they can have that opinion if they want to. But I think in terms of dredging up stuff from the past, particularly of a survivor of abuse, and you know, as she said in her letter, you know, she's been very open about her struggles um, and those struggles have included drug use and drug abuse, I think she's even said. So, look, and even if it wasn't anything like that, I mean, it's smoking a bong when you're in your early 20s or your late teens. I mean, who cares, really? <laughs>
0: Indeed, uh, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance Code of Ethics states that journalists should use fair, responsible, and honest means to obtain material. Karen, do you think obtaining material from someone's social media account is ethical, or does it does it simply depend on who it is?
3: Oh, look, it's it's common practice. I've done it myself to trawl social media accounts to find photographs, video, and other information about somebody. And there's a feeling because it's in the public domain, it is fair game. But we really do need to be having the discussions about whether it is right to do it. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Um, And I actually hosted for Mia and the Walkleys last year a series of webinars on the Code of Ethics. And during one of the ones we were talking about privacy, the journalist Ginger Gorman made a really great point about it's all very well to go and find these photographs, but you don't actually understand at all what the context of that photograph might be and what kind of uh, harm that might do by putting that into the public domain. You don't understand what somebody's reaction to a dead person might be, for example, if it's a if it's a dead person. So I think um, it's it's not as simple as yes, no, we should or we shouldn't. We need to be having the conversations, and if we think there is a real public interest in this, then to do it. Another provision of the code of ethics is presenting pictures, sound, which are true and accurate. Well, how do we know what the real context of that Grace Tame? Uh, photograph was Um, you know how do we understand that what's the source of the pictures what's the motivation of the person giving us the pictures have they been paid for there's a whole lot of questions that we need to ask ourselves and conversations we need to be having in newsrooms uh, about the ethicalness the moralness whether it's really right and there's also this other idea of the public interest just because it's of interest to the public does not mean it's in the public interest and I think that's something that we really need to be thinking about as well as journalists we bang on about you know I'm doing this in the public interest but are we really Um, I think that's something we need to be asking ourselves a lot
0: Well, it, it really comes down to public interest journalism and, and entertainment gossip, really, as you've just pointed out, right? Just because it is in the public's interest doesn't mean it's public interest journalism. It, can, uh, it often seems to run into the salacious. And look, who here doesn't love a, a juicy bit of gossip? I mean, we're, we're journalists. We, we, we have uh, you know, an interest in, in storytelling as such. But how do we get the balance right between proper public interest versus basically gossip or, or entertainment? Amy, to you.
2: I
1: think, I think it, it's whether it actually is going to have an impact in the public interest. So if you have a, let's say, family values politician and you find photos of them not showing those family vo- uh, values, then that perhaps is in the public interest. Of course, once again, making sure that the photos or whatever it is is in context, that you've gone to them for comment uh, and that you've you've carried through all of your responsibilities as a journalist. A photo Photo of a 19-year-old sitting with a bong is is not in the public interest. She's not an anti-drugs crusader, uh, and it's it is that point again, as as Karen just made about you know whether it is just of interest. I mean, like that photo that we're talking about with Grace Tame had been deleted from her Instagram and somehow managed to turn turn its way up, which just goes to show that there are people out there who are taking screenshots of what we're putting out from God knows whenever, just waiting for an opportunity to try and run it. And they're using the fact that the media, certain aspects of the media, will run this stuff regardless of whether it's in the public interest. So they're actually using the fact that they know that some of us in the media are going to just go, yes, I'm going to do that for the clicks. And we need to take responsibility for that and also have a bit of a reflection on that in the fact that we're we're being used essentially for, you know, revenge or vengeance campaigns. It's just, it, it is just gossip. And I don't think that we often prosecute uh, that enough because we are just, certain aspects of the media are just in a rush to get the clicks, to get the notoriety.
0: Karen, it, it does seem, and, and, and going off what Amy's saying, I mean... it it seems like there's, you know, using this photo, there's a bit of a narrative that's being created around it that might not actually, you know, play into to, to truth and fact. Now, Grace has spoken about the fact that she did turn to substance abuse or she did harm her body at times as a result of her trauma. Now, as the chair of the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma in the Asia-Pacific region, you would work with this sort of stuff all the time. So the centre actually released a statement in response to, to Grace Tame's open letter letter stating that there's an urgent need for trauma literacy training for journalists, including how to interview survivors of trauma and understanding the impacts of of vicarious trauma. How could trauma training change the conversation around public interest journalism, do you think?
3: Well, it helps us to understand and and walk in somebody else's shoes and to understand what we ask and the approaches that we take can have a, a real impact on people. You know, we talk about public interest, but we really need to look at the person harm, the potential personal harm with somebody and the private impact that our work can have on people. So when you take a a trauma-informed approach where you have an understanding of what a trauma survivor has gone through and the kinds of responses they can have, and I certainly didn't have time um, at this point to go into the the very great detail of of what um, trauma survivors can go through, but the bottom line is that you just need to treat them with respect, give them some agency. Um, So taking a trauma-informed approach, is really important and considering what they've experienced. Rosie Batty for example, um, you know, another former Australian of the year, I was actually outside of her house the day after her son Luke had been killed when she came out to talk to reporters. I mean, it was a a pretty extraordinary uh, 20, 25 minutes where she spoke to us. But one of the things that she raised as part of that was um, the images of Luke that had been lifted from Facebook and his various social media accounts. And she sort of says, please take those down. I don't want you using those I would like to send out some photographs she took control she's a pretty extraordinary woman more generally but that sort of taught me and the journalists around me that day that um, by giving agency and we all agreed absolutely so you know somebody one of her friends sent out um, images later and they're the images mostly that you see Um, so you know giving control to people who've been traumatized and and asking them um, I guess permission to some degree we we know that we treat politicians differently. We won't give them questions in advance and we never show them or we shouldn't be showing them our copy. But I think there's a real feeling that when you're dealing with survivors, when you're dealing with trauma uh, victims, that we should actually be doing things differently, that we need to understand better what they're going through um, and the kind of physiological, psychological um, effects that trauma has on, on people. Um, and when we have a trauma-informed approach and we understand also the vicarious trauma that can happen to us, uh, then that uh, really makes a difference. So um, I agree media literacy is part of, uh, you know, trauma literacy is part of it, but we actually have to have the conversation about why are we doing this? What is this for? It's uh, the, the trauma part's a really important part of it, but it's a bigger question about why are we doing this? And Amy makes reference to the clicks, and, you know, that's part of the problem. We've got this huge trust deficit with the media at the moment. You know, uh, the latest Edelman Trust Barometer of 2020 says Australia media, only 43% of Australians trust the media. That's fallen. We had this great high during the height of the pandemic in 2020. And here we are, we've dropped again. And going into an election, it's only going to get worse.
0: Jacqueline, Karen's talking about a trust deficit with the media. Uh, what What do you attribute that to?
2: Um, I think it's a lot to do with the rise of social media and the sort of um, the fragmentation of uh, people's attention spans. And I suppose, um, you know, we're going through a pandemic. um, Conspiracy theories are rife and people are using, uh, you know, I mean, social media has sort of changed the game, hasn't it? Um, There's been uh, an erosion of funding to newsrooms. There's been shutting down of, you know, valuable sort of news outlets like local papers. So at the same time, as newsrooms have shrunk and become less well-resourced, you've had the rise of social media, which through, you know, the algorithms that social media uses, they always reward content that's incendiary and emotional and stuff that people, is, that, you know, things that people are going to engage with on social media, which tends to be more extreme stuff. So in a sense, um, the media, the traditional media has sort of had to compete with that, which I think has led to the rise of clickbait and, you know, that's not gone unnoticed by the, the reading and um, viewing public. So there's good reasons really why um, there's been an erosion of, of trust in the media and I think journalists haven't always done themselves favours, although I wouldn't say that tabloid journalism or sort of the worst aspects of, um, of you know, unethical journalism have gotten any worse. I think, you, if, any, if anything, we've sort of gotten a bit better with that stuff. Um, but, you know, you know, when you look at it sort of historically, but I think the media has also become more political and probably more polarised in its politics, which people distrust. So all of those things, I mean, it's sort of a perfect storm. We're living in an age of disinformation and the media is very much um, losing out. And you can see that in the bottom lines of sort of subscriptions and um, the advertising dollar. So they're all the things that I would attribute the sort of lack of trust in the media too and it's our job to try to rebuild that trust and i would also i mean you know in an ideal world i suppose you'd see governments stepping in and trying to level the playing field a little bit by funding investigative journalism um you know funding public broadcast journalism setting up a sort of slightly more even playing field between traditional quality journalism and um and and social media sort of quick bait stuff
0: Amy, sections of the media often play hero and villains with some people in the public eye. Um, I'd like to get your views on where you think the line is between a good story and protecting someone's mental health.
1: It's a really interesting question because protecting someone's mental health should be a forefront for all of us, just as humans, not you know, not just as journalists. I think again, it, it does come down to you know certain aspects. Is it in the public interest? And by that I mean, you know, is it going to have an impact on policy? Has this person been completely hypocritical? Has it exposed them as a liar? That sort of thing. So when you you look back at, you know, previous cases of of Belle Gibson who was the convicted fraudster uh, in the health and wellness area where she had claimed to have had brain cancer uh, and had healed herself through diet and that was revealed by Fairfax uh, as no, she had never had actually had brain cancer and that she was taking all of these people for a ride. That obviously impacted Belle's uh, mental health, as she'd said, but it was absolutely a story that needed to be told. When you go back, trawl back through people's social media to try and find gotcha moments, we're also sort of saying, though, that you'd never get a chance as an adult to, to change. And I think that's part of the conversation that we have to have as well because... Now that we're into, you know, generations where entire lives have been lived on social media, who you were in your early 20s is most likely not who you are at 45 or 50 or whenever. And yet we we don't seem to allow people to change anymore. So I think we need to take that into account when we're looking at these older photos as well and what impact that's going to have on someone's mental health when we show them who they used to be. Because young people, and I'm talking about my, you know, myself here and, and, and my youth, like I was stupid. I was an absolute idiot. <laughs> And I took risks and I did things that now I look back and just go, oh, my God, you know, what was I even thinking? If those photos emerged or there were photos of that, then, you know, I would have uh, a, a lot of embarrassment to to try and explain and, and, a, and a, a, a bit of a reckoning, I suppose, with, you know, the person that I used to be. And it was nothing outrageous. It was just, you know, it was just teenage stuff, just drinking too much and just going a little bit crazy. If those photos were to come out now and sort of be like you know this is who Amy Ramakis is I would have to sit there and go actually no I was you know young and I was going through something but we don't actually allow that uh it seems in, in the media, particularly if you're going to be casting somebody as, as a villain or catching somebody out, we don't allow people to change anymore. And I think that's, that's really something that we have to reconcile with. Why do we allow photos of somebody when they were, you know, in their early 20s to dictate who they are 20 years later?
0: I think we can all relate to that. I think, I have to say, Facebook memories is incredibly triggering. I get reminded <laughs> every day of what I what I was saying or what I was doing uh, 10 years ago. The only it's point horrifying. of Facebook now is
1: to remind me of how much of an absolute just mess I was <sighs> 10 years
0: ago. Oh, I think I was right there with you, Amy. Um, <laughs> have we seen a way in the way, have we seen a change in the way that uh, a sexual assault survivors or a, um, alleged sexual assault survivors Survivors have been portrayed in the media, or do you think we're still victim bashing?
1: Uh, I think uh, I think it really depends on how outspoken that survivor is. Uh, you know, everyone starts off from the from the point that of oh, this person is a, is a survivor, and we need to take what they're saying seriously. The moment that uh, some people stray into the political, they then seem to become fair game for certain commentators, uh, and and that that hasn't changed. And they seem to think that because they've strayed into the political space, well, then everything is you know is fair game, and and it's not. People can have have opinions and still be treated with respect because of, of just what they've been through or, or who they are. And yet we seem to think that the moment that you start talking about politics, uh, you're open to any form of criticism. People control through your social media or your posts or, or pick apart your words uh, and use that against you because you've dared to express a political opinion.
0: Now, let's turn to Anthony Albanese. Uh, the Australian and The Daily Telegraph have had a series of stories about historical accounts and, and photos that are basically trying to show that uh, Albo is an old school communist. So, for, for example, this week the telly had a, a young Anthony Albanese participating in a forum uh, that was put together by the Communist Party's official paper, the Tribune, back in 1991. Uh, do you think this, is any of this actually in the public interest? Uh, Jacqueline, how, how relevant do you think this is in 2022, you know, 30 years
2: on? Yeah. I do think it's in the public interest um, you can see that the, the people pushing this barrow perhaps don't have um, particularly noble intent and they're trying to paint out Anthony Albanese in a certain light and it's in the government's interest to do that but I do think, I mean this is someone who's been in politics his whole life, this is someone who's been in federal politics for decades um, but I think the claim that's often made about Anthony Albanese is even though he's been around for a long time, people don't really know who he is, mm-hmm. so so, um, you know when you're a politician um, and you're acting in a political sort of way even if you're a young politician I think it's certainly in the public interest to know what Anthony Albanese believed at university or what he was doing when he was in his early 20s in terms of his political life because he has been in political life since that time and I think hopefully voters are sophisticated enough to realise that people's views evolve and change over time um, I, I, we, we saw sort of a parallel for this with Christian Porter. There was a lot, I mean the stuff that was raked over from his past was to do with his personal conduct, not his political conduct, but um, you know, there were sort of questions about, you know, along what Amy was saying about whether or not you're allowed to be a bit of a jerk or a bit of an idiot when you're at university and people give you the benefit of the doubt and realise that people can change and grow up. And that was certainly the case that was made um, by Christian Porter's sort of defenders when People were raking over his stuff that he'd done at university, which showed him to be a bit of a immature sort of, you know. Um, idiot I suppose um, and he, he sort of said yeah I did some dumb stuff when I was at uni um, like a lot of the young men I was a bit stupid but um, obviously my views have changed I, I think with Anthony Albanese it's slightly different because we're not talking about his personal conduct, we're talking about his political conduct which is even more relevant to the voting public um, mm-hmm. as we go towards an election so yeah I think it's relevant um, I, I mean ideally you'd see it presented in context but yeah it's relevant it's kind of bit of interest. Um, I think you know this guy is, wants to be the prime minister of Australia. We're we're entitled to know what he was doing um, when he was a young student politician, etc.
0: Right. Well, you've raised two interesting points there that I think we we should definitely discuss. Let's first uh, start off with Christian Porter. Uh, Amy, do you think that's comparable? Do you do you think Christian Porter and those examples are a fair comparison?
1: I mean, we're we're talking about two very, very different issues uh, and I I totally understand what Jacqueline is saying there. And when what was raised about Christian Porter's conduct at university and what he was writing in in some of the the journals that he was editing, that became relevant because we were talking about an alleged uh, incident that happened around that same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is which is why which is why it was brought up. That was that is a very 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 difficult issue though because we were missing um, a very important voice in all of that because his uh, his uh, accuser was not uh, around to be able to defend herself or to speak about what had happened. We only had her uh, posthumous um, writings and and. And complaints, all that were released posthumously, I should say, uh, and it was not something that could ever be proven or disproven, I suppose. Uh, and it was, it was a really, really, really fraught time uh, to be covering something like that because you wanted to do the best you could in terms of the public interest, but also honour honour the memory of the woman who had raised these allegations while also making sure that Christian Porter had the fair right of reply. So that that was very, very difficult. In terms of, like, going back through Anthony Albanese's past as a politician, um, I agree with Jacqueline in that it is relevant, but um, her point that it should be presented in context, I think, is probably, um, should be should be raised, you know, very, very high because at the moment it's come out because we have an election scare campaign being run by the government uh, that Labor is not going to be tough enough on China and that are secret Chinese sympathisers essentially is what the government wants people to believe. So trawling back uh, to the early 90s to say, well, look, this Labor politician, uh, you know, spoke at a communist event, uh, therefore he's probably a secret communist, uh, I think it does absolutely need to be placed into the context of what is happening. Uh, right now.
0: Well that is the other the the other point that I wanted to wanted to touch on that you raised, Jacqueline. You know, there is I think as you've said, it's it's completely fair and reasonable and within the public interest that if we're about to elect someone to lead this country, that we know what their political values are and and, you know, possibly what they once were and how they've evolved over time. But there's a clear narrative that's being drawn about ALBO and also about what would happen uh, if we were to put the country in the hands of the Labour Party here. And I think for those of us who know anything about communistic values and also know anything about uh, the the Labour Party values, I think we all know they couldn't be further (laughs) from each other. (laughs) And it's quite laughable to suggest that that Labour really has any sort of communistic values. Uh, Karen, what are your thoughts on this? Did you think it was responsible journalism, uh, what you saw with the
3: Anthony Albany Easy photo. I want to know the motivations of who's put it out. I want to know who's pushing this. You know, I think these are important really? questions we need to ask. Really? I think that's we quite clear. <laughs> Well, exactly. But, but I think that should be part of the accountability part of us as journalists. Right. It actually should be, uh, you know, we, we need to be more transparent about this. Um, so uh, and I think asking the question, why now? He has been in politics for a long time. So how is it that this didn't come up earlier i did it come up earlier and it wasn't relevant i understand that the, the the context that we're talking about but that context hasn't been put in place either so i think that you know and going back to the um, media entertainment arts alliance's code of ethics you know number 1 report and interpret honestly disclosure of offens- of essential facts mm. don't give distorting emphasis all of these things you could say perhaps would relate to this but look i guess the couple of things i would say about this too is um you know i would urge listeners uh, consumers of media to use the tools of our society to demand better well, you know there is the code of ethics so journalists you know asks journalists do you abide by the code of ethics i don't know a journalist who would say no i don't now there are issues with that uh, they can only be a mere member media entertainment arts alliance member for us to take sanctions against them but you know journalists in the main would say yes i abide by the code of ethics so you know utilizing these kinds of tools making complaints calling out unethical behavior, behaviour. Uh, now, Anthony Albanese is not going to go that route, I wouldn't think, because it's not going to make him look good. But that's not to say that consumers can't go to media outlets and say, what what gives here? What are you doing here? You know, complaining to the regulators. It's important that we hold people to account. And I think the other thing we actually need to be demanding too is, you know, that our political leaders actually stand for, for truth and accountability and transparency. And, you know, we, we know that uh, politically governments of all persuasions at all levels you know really are not uh, in favor of press freedom we've got you know australia on the press freedom rankings in the world has you know fallen five spots uh in recent years we're now 26th uh, in the world rankings we're also um when it comes to corruption we've slid down that as well we're now in eight, 18th place we were in 10th place 10 years ago these things are connected the fact that we have government Trying to obfuscate, uh, you know, you uh, send us an email, ask us some questions. They send back three paragraphs that don't answer your question, and give you a whole lot of background that you're not interested in. The freedom of information regime is a joke. Um, the courts that uh, are, you know aren't open in the way they were. We've got trials in in secret. There are a whole lot of big, big issues about the way our media runs and the government's role in it. So, I, you know, I guess I just get on my on my high horse there about, um, you know, we need to be demanding greater accountability and transparency as journalists, but we also need to offer it up as well. We need to be very clear about where stuff is coming from and how we're going about reporting.
2: Can I just put in there? I would agree with everything that Karen says about the structural stuff in Australia that, um, you know, impedes transparency and the freedom of the press to operate. But I would say with the Anthony Albanese stuff, i I. Don't don't see what the big deal is about... I mean, the reason that it's coming out now is because people are taking a look at him for the first time, and they're possibly going to be electing him as Prime Minister. So why wouldn't he be looking at the stuff that he's done in a political sphere um, when he was a younger man? If there was an equivalent, you know, I'm trying to think of an equivalent of the the Communist Party on the the conservative or right-wing of politics, but if Scott Morrison had given a speech to, I don't know, whatever the right-wing version of the Communist Party was back in the 80s... And we would absolutely be raking over it and we would absolutely be talking about it. And a lot of people would think that it told us something important about who Scott Morrison was as a younger man. And who he might be as a man now, and his true convictions. So, you know, and the, I mean, the, the Communist Party. Okay, it's not the Labour Party, but the Communist Party was pretty, was um, you know, a pretty controversial um, outfit for for a long time. That was in certain periods of history, sort of propping up some some pretty dodgy regimes. Um, and even now, so it, it's not it's not nothing. I'm not I'm not saying that the, all the people who've, who've put that out there have been good faith actors, and they've done it for, for reasons of transparency and for the good of the voting public. I'm sure that they've done it for political reasons, but that doesn't mean that it's not in the public interest to to publish that stuff.
3: I would agree with that, you know, but I also think that we need to be more upfront about and asking the motivations of people. And I guess the irony for me is, you know, we talk about communist China, but China's not actually a communist country in reality. It's a country of oligarchs and serfs. It's got a whole, you know, it's basically capitalism, you know, gone crazy at the top and a whole lot of people down the bottom having to shuffle around their lives. So I actually find that to be part of the irony is we talk about communist China, but it's actually not particularly communist in my view at all. It's Basically, an oligarchy.
0: That that is how we often talk about uh, communism. We sort of point to uh, extreme regimes of, say, uh, China and and Russia, which don't actually really fit into communistic values. They're sort of, as you say.
2: I'm sorry to. Sorry to interrupt again, but we're talking about Anthony Albanese, uh, you know, being associated with the Communist Party. What in the eighties, nineteen ninety-one? Okay, well, so the, I mean, that's kind of even worse because by the nineties, we knew that what the worst excesses of the of the Communist Party were around the world. A lot of sort of old time left wingers had left the Communist Party and completely rejected its values because we knew of the that, that it had perpetrated in various regimes in Eastern Europe and beyond. So, I mean, it's, I don't want to get into an argument about Anthony up an easy bit to say that it's not relevant that he was still happy to associate with the Communist Party in the 90s, you know, I, I, I just don't, I think we do have a right to know that. I'm not
3: saying it's not relevant. I'm just saying I think we just need to be very open about the motivations of people putting this forward. We do
1: have a conservative example of this. Matt Canavan uh, is a self-proclaimed communist and Marxist from 1998.
2: (laughs) at least, too. And nobody would would accuse him of being um, anything like that now.
1: No, I know, I know, but I'm just saying if we're talking about what people were yeah. like when they're young, their political beliefs, I mean Matt Canavan at university was walking around, you know, saying I'm a communist and I'm a Marxist and you know we've got to get rid of John Howard, I don't quite like that bloke, so
0: like, People really yes, can people change can. <laughs> <laughs> Really, really can Well, uh, Amy, I think you've made the point perfectly that who we are at 20 doesn't always bear any resemblance to, to who we become later on in life, and look, with an upcoming federal election, no doubt we'll, we'll likely hear a lot more from both the politicians and the media, bringing up relics from from both leaders' personal and professional history to uh, establish if they're fit to lead the country or at least in the name of that. So I'm sure this will be the first of many conversations that we have this year uh, on this topic. On that note, I'd like to thank all of you, Jacqueline Maley, Amy Remekus and Karen Percy for joining us this week on Fourth Estate. Thank, thank you.
2: you so much for having us.
0: And thank you for listening to 4th Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. 4th Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to 4th Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks to my producer Marlene Even and executive producer Anthony Dockrell. I'm Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe and catch us next week on Fourth Estate.